All right, why don't we uh, go ahead and get started. Check my, check my watch here. Um, try to keep it to a reasonable amount of time. Uh, so this evening, we're going to talk about, um, or I want to talk about, youth ministries. Um, it's, a, it's an important topic, and uh, kind of as I said at the beginning of this, um, you know, we were going to spend 12 weeks, and, uh, and so we will be wrapping this up pretty quickly. I forget how many topics I have left, but I plan to be done by the end of the year. Uh, and then beginning the first Wednesday in January, uh, I actually want to start teaching through uh, the 1646 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So we'll take that paragraph at a time. We'll look at all the scripture verses and actually teach through that. So that, uh, so that we can really wrap our minds around it. I think that would be good. Um, and so, so, yeah, when I started this series, you know, I wanted to hit on topics that I just felt would, you know, were important to shaping our church. Yes, please. To shaping our church, what kind of a church are we? I want to try to be very clear with this, and I want all of us to just be on the same sheet of music be on the same page um and so talking about youth ministries this is this is a very important topic right particularly in western churches i mean it is it is a big deal in the western world um europe but uh, primarily when you get into the uk and then canada and the united states youth ministries is huge not so much my understanding in like Christian churches in Africa um, and those sort of uh, nations. Um, and so what do we do about youth ministries when we talk about youth ministries? I mean, are they biblical? Are they not biblical? Um, should churches have them? Should they not have them? Well, in one sense, it kind of depends on how you define it, right? In one sense, youth ministry has been around since Old Testament times, right? If, if we're going to define youth ministry as ministering the word of God to children, well, there's Old Testament texts that we can go to, and we'll actually go to some of those. Um, and so, you know, in one sense, it's been around uh, from the beginning. But in another sense, when we talk about ministering in, in the modern sense, right? Like today in America, if someone says, does your church have a youth ministry? Most of us know what that means, right? It means, do you have this large group of kids that all pile into one room or into a gym and is there somebody who is given the designated title as youth minister and he does whatever is necessary to teach them the word of God and I'm trying to be fair here teach them the word of God in a fun entertaining interactive way uh, in an effort to get them the gospel somehow and hopefully grow them in some way. Um, and, you know, do they do, you know, maybe once a year youth retreats? So that's typically what kind of comes to mind when, when most people think of, of, of youth, youth ministries. Um, how did all that come about? So I want to do a little, little brief uh, survey. So ministering... To children. So now we're talking post-New Testament, right? Because I just said that if you if you define it as just ministering the Word of God to children, well, you can find that in the Old Testament, you can find that in the New Testament. Um, 
But when we talk about um, outside of the New Testament, beyond the New Testament, within the church, within the organized church, you know, when do we begin to see this? Um, and at what point does it become, does it go from good to not so good? Um, well, really, the earliest known um, formal, organized, ministrated children uh, can really go back to the second century um, with a document known as the Didache, and it's written um, prior to sometime between, I think, 85 and 150 A.D., uh, the Didache is, is, we don't know who the author is, um, and, and we call it the Didache. It's really the Greek word for teaching, um, and it's one of the earliest known catechisms that was used within the church uh, in the second century A.D., um, and so it's, a, it's an ancient catechism, uh, and, so, and so that was used back then. It was used for centuries thereafter, um, other writers um, acknowledge it, you know, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Augustine are aware of the Didache. Um, and so that's where we see really the first uh, sort of formalized way of catechizing children uh, so that they can uh, learn the word of God. Um, then as you move forward, I mean, you get into the Reformation, the Reformation era, which is then followed by the Puritan era. The Reformation is sort of the 14, 1500s, the Puritan era, 1600s into the 1700s. Um, they were huge on catechizing children. Um, you know, the, the, many, many reformed pastors, Puritan pastors, many of them wrote their own catechism for their own churches. Um, they would, uh, you know, but this primarily was the job of parents. So during the Reformation era, during the Puritan era, uh, the, even though pastors, many pastors, theologians, you know, Calvin wrote a catechism, Luther wrote a catechism. Spurgeon wrote a catechism. Um, Spurgeon is considered by many historians to be the last of the Puritans. Um, they, they would write these catechisms, but the emphasis was always, this is for the parents, right? You take this home, you catechize your children, and you sit in the living room, you catechize your children. And, um, and that was youth ministry. And it is organized in some way, right? Here's, here's a curriculum to follow. Here's something to do. Uh, gather your family around the dinner table nightly, go through the catechism, have them memorize it. Um, in recent decades, the use of catechism has sort of fallen out of favor. I, I think it's the result of, you know, public schools and all these people with lots of letters behind their last name saying, you know, teaching by means of rote memorization is just, just a bad teach, right? You don't want to do that. You want to make learning fun. But in recent years, it seems like catechisms are making a comeback. I think that has to do with Reformed theology starting to make a comeback. People are rediscovering the catechisms that were used by the Puritans and the Reformers. Um, but, but nonetheless, a lot of great catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is, uh, even if you don't um, try to memorize them or teach them to your children, you know, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism was the, the first uh, Reformed catechism that I ever just read as a young believer. Um, I can't remember someone gave that to me. I remember being in my early 20s and I just read through it on my own, sort of as devotional reading. I'd read my Bible and then I'd just, I would just read the next question. I'd read the answer and look up the scripture verses. So much that can be learned from just reading these great catechisms and looking up uh, the scripture references that, that go along with them. 
Um, that idea of ministering to children, right, that's commanded in Scripture, and then you've got the Didache, the earliest known catechism for uh, not just children, but really converts. It was designed for um, converts to the Christian faith, adult believers as well. Uh, that continues until you get to the, the Reformation, the Puritans. Then you start to see a whole lot more catechism. Then we have the development of Sunday school, right? Um, when does that idea come around? Um, because you don't see that in uh, you don't see that in the Reformation um, era, not in the way that we see it today. The first known Sunday school ministry in a church um, comes around in the 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 late 18th century, right? Late 1700s, around 1780 uh, in England. And it's uh, implemented by a guy named Robert Rakes in England. And it actually comes about because uh, this is during the time of the Industrial Revolution in England, um, where, where factories are being built for the first time. The, the concept of mass production is being developed for the very first time. People are starting to shift. The population is starting to shift from being a primarily agricultural society to a manufacturing society. People are moving to the city. Cities are becoming congested. Um, and so now families, by and large, are no longer producing all of their uh, goods on their farm in terms of food and, and, and clothing. They're moving into the cities and they're living in these cramped quarters because, you know, they have to be in walking distance to the factories during the Industrial Revolution as that comes about, moves to the United States as well. Um, so where do they get all of their food? And clothing, they have to buy them, right? So now this is starting. This is the beginning of the modern era. You have to go to the store and buy your clothing. You go and you buy your food. You take it home. You cook it. Um, well, because this is all new, wages have not really balanced out with the work week. The whole idea of a forty-hour work week hadn't even been thought of yet. People just work seven days a week and child labor, right? This is where you start to get whole families. Kids as young as seven years old are going to factories and they're working on these, operating these big pieces of machinery all day long, seven days a week, and they're not learning, they're not going to school. And so Robert Rake decides that, look, children need some sort of education. Uh, and even with the Industrial Revolution, there's still a lot of factories, a lot of families that are making church a priority. And so he decides we'll create a Sunday school where we're going to teach children, one, the Bible, but we're going to teach them how to read as well, right? They can't read the Bible if they don't know how to read. And so it starts out as, as a ministry to teach the Bible, but also teach these kids how to read and write so that they can actually read the Bible and get some sort of education. That's really where the whole concept of Sunday school begins. So prior to that, you know, nowadays, I mean, it's just sort of expected, right? Every church has a Sunday school. What church doesn't have a Sunday school? Uh, unless you're a church plant like ours. Um, but, but typically it's just expected. But that has not always been the norm. Throughout most of church history, there really was no concept of Sunday school like we understand it um, today. So that picks up steam. It gives people ideas like, hey, this is working really well. If you have a good Sunday school curriculum, it, it tends to attract families uh, because they like bringing their kids to Sunday school. And at least for that hour, they can kind of put them in their Sunday school. And then you might have an adult Sunday school class where it's all adults. 
and they can learn, be without their kids for a short time. And eventually that leads to the whole modern youth ministry, right? And that begins to develop in 1941 by a guy named Jim Rayburn, who's a Presbyterian minister um, and uh, actually graduates from Dallas Theological Seminary. And he begins an, an organization called Young Life in Gainesville, Texas, right? We're going to start this, this, and it's basically just a way to minister to the teens, right? We want to try to minister to the teens. Their mission for Young Life, their mission statement was introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. That's not a bad mission statement. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. It seems like a good thing to focus on. Their strategy was caring, uh, it, their strategy was for caring adults to build genuine friendships with teens and earn the right to be heard with their young friends, right? So that was the idea. We're going to get these adults, they're going to build relationships with these teens, be able to dialogue with them, earn the right to be heard, give them the gospel, teach them the Bible, right? That's where you're starting to go off now, right? Earn the right to be heard. You got to earn the right share the gospel with somebody. And uh, now we're starting to get into the consumerism mentality, right? If you want me to listen to you, you got to present it in a way that piques my interest, in a way that I like. And if you don't present it in a way that I like, then I'm going to go someplace else that's going to present it in the way that I want to hear it. At the same time that uh, Jim Rayburn is starting uh, Young Life in Gainesville, Texas, uh, Youth for Christ was holding large rallies in England and um, Canada. Eventually, it made its way down to the United States. So you've got this organization called Youth for Christ. They're starting to hold these yard, large rallies with teens, bringing in these teens and just getting them all excited, You know, um, doing some fun things with them. Youth for Christ begins to organize na a national movement, and they begin to produce Bible clubs in the late 1950s and 60s. So now, so like, we still have those today, right? Like Backyard Bible Club, right? We got these Bible clubs and they start, they're the ones that start organizing these Bible clubs for kids. Uh, so we're gonna get these kids involved. By the early 1970s, churches began to see the need for specialized ministries and specialized ministers uh, to reach out and minister to teens. And so they begin to hire for the first time youth pastors, right? You got pastors, and we have associate pastors, but now we want to hire a youth pastors. And this is in the 19, 1970s. And of course, these youth pastors um, are expected to look. We, we want the goal again is we want to be able to get the word of God to these kids. Right. But they're not going to listen and they're not going to come if you don't pique their interest. So youth pastors in the 1970s are are doing what they can to connect with the teens, kind of dressing like them, being cool, coming up with fun games, great activities, and uh, really trying to generate interest um, um, among the teens. Through it all, these youth ministries followed what is called an attractional model. Churches today still follow that, right? An attractional model. And that, that's actually the phrase that I have read in many uh, books that I've read on, on church planting and church growth. Years ago, right, I read a book. You all familiar with The Purpose Driven Life? Well, after that book came out and it was super successful, uh, the youth pastor of Rick Warren's church came out with 
the Purpose Driven Youth Ministry. And, and I read that one years ago. Um, and, and it's the attractional model, right? You've got to do what brings them in, right? The goal first is to get them through the door. And then once you get them through the door, you got to pique their interest, get them excited so that they'll want to come back. And somehow in there, you give them the word of God and you hope it sinks in, takes root, and maybe they get saved. And uh, that's, that's ultimately the goal, right? It's like bait the hook with the right bait. So you can hook them, bring them in, and then give them the gospel, right? But even using that analogy, if you're going to use that analogy in a biblical sense, the hook should be baited with what? The gospel, right? Yeah, Christ, the word of God. That, Yeah, you bait the hook with Christ, right? Here you dangle Christ in front of them in all of his glory. And if they swim by, oh, well, you're missing out, right? Um, but the idea was not bait the hook with Christ, bait the hook with other things to bring them in and then hopefully uh, give them Christ. And, uh, but as this began to sh take shape, you know, churches also then begin to realize that if you have a well-organized youth ministry, it attracts a lot of youth. And if you can attract a lot of youth, you attract a lot of families. And if you attract families, then what does that do for the church numbers and membership, right? Yeah, it, it, it grows. Um, and that's a big deal in certain denominations. I know for sure the SBC, because I was ordained in the SBC and graduated from the SBC, uh, seminary. Um, you know, they, they, they send, when they have their national convention, for example, they send messengers to the, and, and basically they're the, the people that vote, right? You, you get to send messengers to the national convention. And when they pass resolutions and they get voted on, uh, the messengers from your church are the ones that vote. Well, you get to send one messenger for every 100 members. Hence, you end up with churches like the one that I was a member of when I was in seminary. I won't mention the name because this will be on the Internet. Uh, but it was a church that on paper said we have a membership of 5,000, right? 5,000 members. So you can do the math how many messengers they got to send. But we had an average attendance every Sunday of just under 3,000. So every week there was approximately 2,000 members that weren't there. And I was in a leadership role there. So, uh, and Terry knows this. She kind of helped me with some of this. We, we started to try to clean up our membership role and started making phone calls. And I learned that a lot of those members didn't even live in the state. They had moved out of state like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them were even dead. I called and they said, oh, he, he died like five years ago. So I took notes and I passed it up the ladder, up the chain of command and said, we got to remove these people. They don't even live in the state. This person died. They were never removed off the roll. For the years that I was there for, what, two, three years, and they were never taken off the roll um, because we're going to lose messengers. Right? And, and that's a big deal. It becomes a numbers game and that's really disheartening. Um, some of this information was in that article that I sent you. So some of this may sound familiar to you. Uh, then there was the, uh, with the, uh, the emergence of MTV in the 1980s, right? Um, and, and in production driven ministries start to become more entertainment driven. Um, and, uh, you know, suddenly that's, that's where you start seeing youth ministers 
bringing in live bands, right? They're starting with the light shows, right? We got we to gotta do a big production to get all of these teens coming week after week in, in the hopes that we'll get the word of God into them and, uh, and, and, and that's going to have some sort of trans, transformational uh, effect. Missed my fog machine. The fog machine. Forgot about the fog machine. Here's the effects, though. Per LifeWay research, 70% of teens will drop out of church after high school. 70%. After high school, stop going, right? Because it was fun then, but now moving on and uh, just, you know, now that I'm an adult, if I go to church, I can't be a part of the youth ministry anymore. So I, I, I really don't see the point in going. And of that 70% who will walk away, only about 35% will return. Of the 70%, about 35% of those in their adulthood will end up re returning. At the end of the day, you know, that one article I sent you, I think it was that article, he said uh, um, basically youth ministries have, have proven to be a failure. I mean, it, it's just they're not really effective. It is a lot of money. It is a lot of energy. It is a lot of time. Um, for very little real return. Very few kids are actually coming uh, to know Christ. Um, and so the question then is, okay, well, what does youth ministry look like or what should it look like on a, in a biblical sense? Then? We talk about, we think about youth ministry. What does that mean? First of all, youth ministry, I think, means families participating in a corporate worship experience and teaching the younger generation why we do what we do, right? You've heard me say with the Lord's Supper, right? Use this as a teaching. This is little Johnny. This is why we eat this cracker. This is why, you know, go home with them, the, the liturgy and the bulletin. This is why we do these things. This is what this means. Because we see the Bible telling families to do that. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 12. Can you repeat that again? The families participating in corporate? Families participating together in corporate worship experiences. And, and I'm saying experiences because whether you're talking about family worship, whether you're talking about this, right? Um, one of the reasons... Um, you know, the little ones, I at least have my two little ones. I like them here when we sing and pray. I think that's important. I like that they're at least in the same room. They're hearing, they're seeing what we're doing. And so it is, uh, it is, um, families participating in corporate worship experiences and teaching the younger generation why we do what we do, right? Explaining it to them. Um, it, it's not over their head if you talk to them. In, in their kind of language. But you look at Exodus chapter 12. So here's part of where I get this from. Verses 24 to 27. They've, uh, they've, um, are getting ready to depart. It's the Passover. And, um, uh, they've gotten all the instructions on what to do. You're right. How are you going to do the Passover? You're killing the lamb and smearing the blood. They've gotten all the instructions. And then, Moses says, and you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? 
you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped, right? So God expects, right? I want you to keep doing this year after year. You're gonna celebrate this Passover meal, and the reason you're gonna do it, because you're gonna use this as a teaching opportunity for future generations, for your children. When you do it, they're gonna say, what's with the lamb, and what's with the, the bitter herbs, and why do we do all of this, and it's an opportunity to use these as object lessons, and this is what this means, and this is how God delivered us, and this is why we worship Yahweh. Um, and you do that with the children there, right? You don't send them out to do their own thing, and okay, the adults are gonna have the Passover meal. All the kids are there during the Passover meal. The Lord's Supper is the New Testament church's Passover meal. So we want the children to be there and to explain to them, this is, this is why we do this. Um, either in church or maybe on, maybe on the, uh, the drive home. Look at Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. So they've been given the law, right? The uh, Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch. They've been given Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and uh, and so now here Moses is at the at the end, and he he says in verses nine to thirteen, then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feast of booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that He will choose. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Listen to this. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord. Who's the they? Your little ones, that your little ones may learn to, they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess, right? Read the law to them. How exciting is that? <laughs> not a sermon, right? Not somebody up there with the, somebody is gonna get up there and they're gonna unroll the Torah and they're gonna just read it, right? Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we're gonna just read the book of Deuteronomy and everybody is gathered and they're gonna listen. And God thinks they're able to do that, right? They can, they can listen, they have ears, they may not understand every word, but they'll understand enough to know this is important, this is God's word, right? I'm picking up on the thou shall not lie, thou shall not steal, or I will smite you dead. I'm, I'm picking up on those words, right? Little kids, they hear those words and they understand. So this is first and foremost what, what youth ministry looks like. It, it's a family affair, um, teaching the children the word of God. Secondly, youth ministry, biblically speaking, looks like parents teaching and leading by example. What it means to love God and to live for the glory of God. 
Where am I getting that from? Biblically, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The great Shema. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your... That's a command, by the way. God is commanding parents. You shall do this. You must. This is not for the youth ministers to do. It's not for pastors to do. He's talking to mom and dad. You shall teach them diligently. Right? That means you're going to put forth effort. You're going to work at it. You're going to, you're going to figure out a time, you know, daily or as best you can. This time we're going to get together and I, the dad, am going to diligently teach you the word of God. You shall diligently teach them to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. So what does that entail? All of life, right? It's, it's all of life. You shall talk of them when you sit down and when you, when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, as parents, we should be talking the word of God to our children regularly. You know, not just family worship time, but when you're out going for walks, when you're working out at the gym, you know, when you're listening to a song, hey, this is a great song. What's that line mean? You know, what, what does he mean there? When he sings that line, you know, whatever that is, you know, you're, you're looking for opportunities to talk about the word of God with them um, when you sit down and when you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk by the way. It's something that you're doing. And this is, again, where so many families, I think, have made the mistake of. We don't talk about God at home. We don't, we don't talk religion I've had people tell me that when I was interviewing them for church membership, that, you know, I grew up in a Christian home where we went to church every Sunday. Uh, but, you know, honestly, beyond Sunday, I've had people say, we never really talked about God. I mean, we would go home and we just sort of lived our life. We went to school and at night we watched television. You know, I mean, we may have said a quick prayer before meals. But other than that, it was never a subject in our home. We, heard, we were brought to church. Sunday school, youth ministry, that's where he got it, right? Awanas or whatever the case may be. God is saying, this is what parents are supposed to be doing in the home daily, regularly, instilling the word of God into them. So, so first of all, youth ministry looks like families participating together in corporate worship experiences. Secondly, youth ministry biblically looks like parents teaching and leading by example what it means to love God and what it means to live out his commands in every area of our life. Thirdly, I think, biblically speaking, youth ministry means parents being the primary instructors for the children. Proverbs 1.8. Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland to your head and pendants for your neck. Hear your father's instructions and forsake not your mother's teaching, right? So when the Bible speaks directly to children and says, 
here's who you should listen to. Listen to your father, listen to your mother, right? They are the youth ministers, right? They are the ones who minister to the youth, to their own youth, and they teach them the word of God. That responsibility falls um, on them. Fourthly, youth ministry looks like Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice here, Paul specifically addresses fathers, not fathers and mothers, not parents. That doesn't mean that mom can't teach the Bible to the children. She absolutely can. We just saw Proverbs 1.8, right? Don't forsake your mother's instruction. Um, and I don't think that's just instruction on like, you know, if you're a homeschooling parent on algebra and all that other kind of stuff. I mean, she should be speaking the word of God as well. We can get that from Deuteronomy chapter six, right? That's to parents. That's to all the parents. This is what you do with your children, right? Um, but primarily that responsibility falls on the fathers, falls on the men um, for the entire household. Because if you, if you also connect this with Ephesians 5, which we've already talked about, right? Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, sacrificially gave himself up for her, washing her with the word of God that she might be sanctified, right? So it's our job to be teaching our wives, teaching the children the word of God, hence family worship, right? Um, which we all know what that looks like in real life, right? <laughs> 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 but we shoot for the ideal, right? We, we, we shoot for the ideal. Um, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't always go smoothly. It can, it, it can be frustrating. Um, but there's still the effort needs to be made, right? The effort needs to be made to find a curriculum, find a catechism. Um, I think a lot of men struggle with family worship because, again, I think we've been too influenced by the world. We think youth, you know, we got to make this entertaining. We got to make it fun for the kids. I got to be able to keep their attention. You know, it can be as simple as the way the reformers and the Puritans did it. Gather the family. We're going to pray. I'm just going to read a chapter from the Bible. I'm not even going to comment on it. I'm going to read a chapter from the Bible. And then we're going to memorize a catechism question. We're going to work through the catechism, right? And uh, you just, because by doing that, you're exposing them to the word of God. You're instilling it into them. It doesn't have to be, you know, with, uh, what am I thinking of? No, no. It doesn't have to be with um, illustrations where you make things or do things. There's a word I'm thinking of. What's the word I'm thinking of? Um, visual. Visual. Yeah, visual aids. I mean, you don't have to have visual aids. You don't have to make hand puppets or whatever. Um, I mean, there have even been some family worship guides that I that I've looked at or people have given to me, hey, you might want to use this. And I started looking through it and I thought, this is complicated. I mean, <laughs> they had like all kinds of like, you know, bake cookies with your kids and then while you're baking teach them like, I don't have time for that. Baking cookies with the kids. You know, so So 
don't overwhelm yourself with trying to make it a big to do. Um, uh, for many years, you know, we just, I would just pray. We would sing a hymn. I'd read a paragraph from, uh, you know, we'd walk through the gospel of John. I'd read one paragraph and just explain it to them. And, uh, and if you're thinking, well, I'm not sure how to do that. Well, here's, here's what you do. Here's a cheater. I would read a commentary on that section right before family worship. <laughs> and then I always look really smart. <laughs> um, yeah. Put a little prep time into it. Not much. If you're only doing a paragraph at a time, five verses at a time, four verses at a time, you know, you get yourself a thin paragraph or the ESV study Bible. Read the notes in the ESV study Bible. Okay, I'll go by those, right? But the idea is that you're taking responsibility for ensuring that your family is being taught the word of God and that you're the primary instructor uh, to your children. And so, uh, what number am I on? So, fourthly, youth ministry looks like fathers instructing their children in God's word. Fifthly, youth ministry, biblically speaking, looks like mothers teaching their daughters their biblical roles and responsibilities. Anyone want to take a guess at where I'm getting that from? Right. That pesky Titus 2 passage. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women, right? Don't think young women just means the younger women in church, right? When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, well, you know what? Your family members are your closest neighbors, right? Your children are your neighbor. Your spouse is your neighbor. And so one, Paul writes, teaching the younger women, your daughters. Mom should be teaching their daughters primarily, right? So when women think about discipling and, and the importance of discipling other women, they ought to be discipling their own daughters first and foremost. And if you're not doing that, you really got no business trying to disciple some other woman. If you're not discipling your own daughters to love their husbands and their children to be self-controlled, pure working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. So biblical youth ministry looks like mothers ministering to their daughters and saying, you know, this is what biblical womanhood looks like. You want to be a godly woman? This is what it means. Let me walk you through the scriptures and help you understand that. Sixthly, biblical youth ministry looks like godly and wise adults setting an example for youth to follow, right? So now we're kind of opening it up beyond parents. Uh, Proverbs 13, 20. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, right? But the companion of fools Will suffer harm. If we really want our youth to become wise and godly, and we really want them to be prepared for the adult cutthroat world that they're going to enter into, they are not going to be prepared by hanging around with their peers, right? Being in a room with a whole bunch of other kids their own age behaving in the same way, because that's the second part of that verse. 
the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, right? And biblically, where does wisdom come from? What makes us wise? That's right. So number one is God's word, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, but it's also experience, right? Age, right? Older people, even if they're not Christians, older people are oftentimes more wiser than the younger. Why? Because they've been around a while, right? Been there, done that. Don't make the same mistakes I made, right? They can instill wisdom into the younger generation. Yes, Jack. That's right. Iron sharpens iron. And so if you're going to, and so that's a great illustration. If you're going to, if iron is going to sharpen each other, then those are two really strong metals, right? The real iron sharpens iron. Iron, an iron knife and an aluminum knife is not going to work very well. And two aluminum knives won't work very well either because they're very soft metal. And so the idea there is that someone who falls into the category of iron is someone that is strong in their faith. They have a solid biblical and godly character. They have walked with the Lord. And that's who you want to come up alongside because they're going to help to sharpen you and bring you along. I think that's a great question. But it's not when you take, you know, young kids who many of them are new to Christianity, have just placed their faith in the, you know, are just now starting to get into the Bible. They're just now starting to read through the Bible. They're not very old in the Lord. And they're not going to be able to help each other very well. Now, that's not to say that kids should never be brought together. You know, I'm not saying that kids should never, you know, get together and just have fun. You know, of course they can. But, you know, that's what trail life is for. That's what, you know, getting together on a Saturday afternoon, several families, and let's get the kids together so they can throw Frisbees or start a softball game or whatever the case may be. Or, you know, families coming together in the summertime and just having a pool party where all the adults and the kids are there and they're having fun. Getting kids together is great. But when we're talking about how do we really instill the word of God into them, how do we really help them to become wise and strong in their faith and prepare them for adulthood is if you want them to be prepared for adulthood, the best way they're going to learn that is by being around adults who are strong in their faith, who are wise beyond their years, and they can learn from them. They can model them. They can follow their example. Another great uh, verse that goes along with that is um, 1 Corinthians 5.33, or 15.33, rather. 1 Corinthians 15.33. Bad company ruins good morals. I mean, that applies to adults as well. You know, if you really want to get strong in your faith and, and you want to deepen your faith, um, you want to find people that are stronger than you in their faith. Um, people who are more serious about than you are about God. And you hang around with them and you rub elbows with them and they will be a positive influence in your life. But you hang around with people that are less serious than you are, right? That are less spiritually mature than you are. And ultimately, they're going to end up dragging you down to their level. Yes. That's a great segue to my question. So you talked about how youth ministry came as a whole, came onto the scene. When did we start segregating by age? 
Like, you know, you put four-year-olds yes. together, five-year-olds together, six-year-olds together. How are they going to grow and develop and be wiser if they're around just that little group of people? I mean, we don't do that anywhere but from preschool right. through high school, right? Yep. And then they go off into college and work field, right. and then there's... I think that was the effect of, of basically the school system. You know, schools have always done that, segregated by age, which makes sense, right? You've got your six-year-olds that are just starting to read. You've got your 13-year-olds that are much more ahead, right? So you put the 13-year-olds, you put them in their own educational groups. And that was really the model that was followed in the late uh, 1700s when they implemented the Sunday school model. Is oh, we put the Sunday school kids in their own age group. Um, and then that sort of just was picked up by the whole youth ministry um, movement, uh, putting kids in their own age category and separating them out. And I just think biblically, you just don't see that in scripture. You don't see in the Bible them separating the children out from the adults. You see the children being involved in whatever ministries are going on. Um, in, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. And that is because what we see in Scripture, and we've looked at several verses now, God puts this responsibility of mentoring and ministering to and teaching the Word of God to the younger generation. He puts that on the adults, right? The adults are to be doing that to the children. And, and, and you do not see any... Um, any example or any category of a youth minister. In other words, you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible an example of one man gathering a large group of children to teach them the Word of God. There's there's not a single example in both the Old and New Testament of, of that taking place, right? Um, the closest you can come to, and you could not use this as an example, otherwise you'd be the epitome of arrogance, is when parents are bringing their children to Jesus. And the disciples are trying, no, no, no. He, yeah, and Jesus says, you know, don't prevent the children from coming to me, right? Let, let them come to me, right? Okay, but this is Jesus we're talking about, right? And parents are wanting him to lay his hands on them or bless them or pray over them or something to that effect, yes. But you have the parents. You have the parents, right. So it's a perfect illustration. Right, yeah. If you use it rightly, yes, you have the parents bringing their children to Jesus. That's what we should be doing, Right bringing our children to Jesus and saying, here is Christ, right? Family worship, here's Christ. I'm going to bring my children to Christ, which can be found right here in the word of God. I'm not going to bring my children to a youth minister. I'm going to bring them to Jesus, which is found right here, right? Um, so that was my, my next point. That no example in scripture of an adult gathering a large group of children to minister to them uh, but what we see are parents and grandparents ministering, right? First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy one five, Second Second Timothy one five. Paul writes to Timothy, um, "I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well." Right. And uh, and he, he commends him. Obviously, his grandmother and mother taught him the word of God because later on in chapter 3, verse 14, he'll say, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, his grandmother and mother, 
and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, right? So who was doing that? His grandmother and his mother, right? So there's, there's again, another classic example that yes, it's ultimately the father's responsibility, the husband and father, to teach the family the word of God, but certainly mothers and grandmothers ought to be using every opportunity to instill the word of God into their children and into their grandchildren. In the end, what needs to be remembered, and it, it, it's it's amazing how, you know, we're so fond of quoting Psalm 127.3 when we're talking about the pro-life movement, right? Children are a blessing from the Lord. Children are heritage from the Lord, right? But for some reason, we don't consistently follow that through and when I say we, I mean evangelicalism in general, because children are a blessing from the Lord, except on Sunday, because now I want to send them somewhere else, right? I don't want them in church with me. I don't want them. I want them to go have their own children's church somewhere else. And, you know, I drop them off. I do church. And, uh, you know, I want to hand them off to someone else. Wednesday night, I want to hand them off to some youth minister. It's going to take them someplace else. So at least I get an hour or two without my kids. Right. Children are a blessing. Right? They're a blessing to us. They're a joy. And when we view something truly as a blessing, just ask Bobby, we never want to be away from it or her. <laughs> he was a mess when you went to California. I just got to tell you, he was. You know, when someone, when you view someone or something as a blessing, you want to be around it or them, whatever it may be. You don't want to be rid of it. Children are a blessing. They're a gift from God that he entrusts us with to minister to, to teach, to shepherd. Um, and we are entrusted with their care. What's that? I said some of us have to work That's right. That's right. And so with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this as an opportunity to read um, from our bylaws that um, I hope we uh, to adopt here coming soon on January 7th. This is Article um, 17, Intergenerational Ministry. At Grace Reformed Church, we are convinced that the various age generations need each other. We are convinced that teenagers will become spiritually mature adults by being with spiritually mature adults, not by being isolated from the adult community. We are convinced that adults of all ages will take their faith more seriously if they know the well-being of the children and teenagers in the congregation depends in part upon their faithfulness to Christ and to interacting with the next generation among us. And that's important because I do believe that as a church, it is the responsibility of every adult in our church, and I, and I hope this becomes contagious as we grow, that every adult feels the responsibility to interact with all of the children, not just your own, whether you have children or not, interact with all of them. You know, sit down with the six-year-old or their eight-year-old and Hey, so what are you reading? Or what did you learn today in church? And, you know, did you take any notes? Let me, let me see what you did. 
take those opportunities to interact with the children, be an influence um, in their life. We're a family, right? We're a spiritual family, which means that all of these children are all of our children in one way or another, right? In a spiritual sense, they are all your nieces and nephews, so to speak, um, or grandchildren, uh, so to speak. Um, as a result of these convictions, we adhere to the following principles. Number one, God commands parents, especially fathers, to train their children in the Christian faith. Number two, parents should be the primary Bible teachers for their children because they care what happens to their children and therefore are naturally more motivated to work for the good of their children than anyone else. I believe that. I believe that if you are godly parents and you really love your children and want what's best for them, you are going to be more effective in reaching them than any youth pastor who, you know, just thought it'd be cool to do that for a living and get paid for it, right? These are your kids. Um, number three, children have a natural affection and respect for their parents that motivate them to want to please them and imitate them. And number four, to know and love Christ is not simply information to be known, but a life to be lived. Thus, parents not only impart Christian truth, but also model Christian living. The above principles mean that Sunday school classes only run through age 12. And I mentioned that before, you know, that, that at some point, I do think Sunday school classes would be, would be good, um, but only to age 12. Now, why did I pick age 12? Because in the biblical New Testament Jewish world, when do boys become men? 13, right? Uh, same thing with women, right? They have their own, I forget what it's called. It's not called a bar mitzvah, but they have a, a female version of that when they turn 13. Um, I think it's called a bat mitzvah. Um, and, uh, but it's for that reason that most scholars believe that like Joseph and Mary, here we are celebrating, right? The nativity, Joseph and Mary were, were probably uh, in their teenage years, very likely, you know, Mary may have been around 15, 16. Joseph may have been around 17, 18. At that point, he was expected to start building a house, plowing a field, right? And Mary was, she was getting ready to be a mother and start having children. And they were going to be adults. And they were going to adult and have a family and, uh, and take care of their family. Um, so I think at age 13, we bring the 13-year-olds into the adult Sunday school class, if we have one, into our Bible studies um, and uh, because any 13-year-old who just listens can learn. I'm not saying anything that is above their heads. At age 13 and above, teenagers should attend adult Sunday school classes and midweek studies. They should be encouraged to participate in as many adult events as is practical. Youth ministry is parents ministering to their own children. The best way to prepare teenagers for adulthood is to allow them to interact with spiritually mature Christian adults as often as possible. Finally, our bylaw says, children of all ages should be encouraged and taught to sit quietly in the worship service and observe the adults engaging in the serious worship of God. For this reason, nursery is provided. Obviously, I wrote this thinking ahead, right? Nursery is provided for ages zero to four, the only reason I go with that is because we do live in a day and age when there are some parents who just do not know how to handle their two-year-old. They just, they just don't. Um, and so we want to be compassionate uh, toward that. Um, 
obviously you got to cut it off somewhere. Zero to four. But I do believe that that's optional, though. Um, I never want to be the kind of church that says, oh, two-year-olds can't come into the sanctuary. No, you want to bring your one-year-old in? You want to bring your two-year-old in? If you think they can sit quietly and, you know, and you want to interact with them, and by all means, you know, bring the six-month-old in. I mean, they, you, there's no telling what a six-month-old might learn hearing us sing the Word of God. At five years of age, they are brought into the sanctuary and allowed to participate in all of the sights, sounds, and scents of corporate worship. Nursery for ages zero to four is optional and left to the judgment of the parents. Um, so I, that is my, what I believe to be a biblical view of youth ministry, what youth ministry uh, looks like, and not borrowing from the world and not buying into this attractional model. I mean, we want to we do it the way they did it in, in biblical times. And I, I obviously, I always think God is right. I think the Bible is right. We need to go with Scripture and not, you know, defer to Scripture more than the experts, the professionals, right? The, 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 the trained youth pastors, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, any questions, comments, anything? Yes, Margo. What, do you, uh, what is your take on, like, youth camps? Youth camps. Um, I'm opposed personally. Uh, I'll just be honest there. Um, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a, now. When I say I'm opposed, let me just let me try to be careful here. I, I don't think they're evil or wicked. I don't think it's sinful. I don't think if <laughs> uh, you know if a if a parent you know sends their kids to a youth camp, uh, I'm not going to judge them. Um, I wouldn't send mine. Uh, I won't say, you know, they say never say never. I won't say that I would never send them, but I would be extremely particular and would want to really vet it well. Um, but by and large, just my experience and articles that I've read and people that I've spoken to who either grew up being sent to youth camps or that worked at youth camps with youth ministries um, there's a lot of not good that happens at youth camps. Um, and so I'm, I'm not a fan. I don't endorse them. I do not envision our church ever having something like that, um, as a church sending kids to a youth camp. Um, I just don't see the need for it. I don't think it's necessary and I don't see it in scripture. Um, I don't see Israel sending their kids off someplace for three weeks. Um, so that's, that, that's my view on it. Yes, Shannon. I like the teen ministry. It's like what is even more dangerous than just like the, the it not sinking in with youth is you have these teens who grow up into young adults and many, many further than that who are absolutely sure of their belief in Jesus. That right. And right. It's, it's like they don't even know that what they um, are attracted to is the entertainment and emotion. They don't see it until they're not an idiot or someone right. comes and goes, did you know that, you know, like you actually should be reading your Bible daily versus looking forward to the events. And right. so when it stops being entertaining, you stop caring and you think that it's right. You think that it's not selfish. Yeah. Like they didn't know me. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's, it's sad. I cannot tell you 
uh, and I'm not exaggerating. I don't think I could count how many times over the years I've interviewed adults from membership who told me that they grew up in youth groups and were a part of them and then, you know, and, and made a profession of faith at a young age and went to all of the youth ministry things. And then they went to college and they quit going to church. And they were honest and said, you know, I think because when I went to church, it was just church at that point. And so I sort of fell out of church, but I still believed I was saved. And then they'll say something like, but you know, I don't think I really got saved until I was like 25 or 30. Because then they realized at that moment, I became serious about the things of God. I truly wanted Christ and only Christ. And looking back, they realized, I don't think I was saved all those years, uh, taking the Lord's Supper, going to all of those youth things. Now, I mean, we can't say that that's true of everybody, right? right? But, but that's, a, that's a very common story that I've heard from many who grew up going to youth camps and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Yeah. It really is. Bobby, I think your hand went up. Well, she, she kind of said it. it's, it's the problem. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I did, I did good, good news, you know, last semester at, uh, the, the, the uh, shredded thread, as I call it. That's my nickname. I don't say, I don't say right. that word anymore. <laughs> anyway, um, that that course alone, I, I know the people that are behind it. I think they they want to do what they should do in, in, a, in a sort of proper way. But the problem is, during listening to how it was done, I mean, they're getting these kids to try to make a profession of faith, and they have no idea what repentance is. Right, right. Just say this prayer, right? Yeah, and that's that. I mean, to be honest with you, it. it I knew, I stayed, I started to do my thing, I even played a couple of my songs, you know, and that was entertainment, however, um, explained what the songs were about, so hopefully, you know, maybe got something, right. but it was just, to me, it was, it was really sad, I couldn't believe it, there was no way I would go back and get that, not saying that you, a kid can't get saved because you can never say never, right. or in famous words, because... There have been people that have been saved in extremely strange circumstances sure. or out of strange circumstances. Sure. What Shannon said really is we know we know in general the church as a whole, the universal church as a whole, right. the world has gotten into the church so dramatically, so smoothly, so angel like like yeah. you know what that is. Yeah. Uh, that it's 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 sad and appalling, really. Right. So it's not doing it's not doing the youth any good. Right. At all, really. Right. At the end of the day, it's really not helping. Yeah. It'll mature them and grow them up in the way that they should go. It's not not helping. Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And it's true that they could be saved, they just have no growth because they don't they're stymied. Right? It's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, children certainly can get saved at a young age, and, and maybe they're just not growing because they're not really being taught well in, in that church. Um, but I do hear what Bobby is saying. You know, even even among parents, we need to be careful about, you know, it's every parent's greatest desire, right? I want my children to be saved. We need to be careful about just, you know, here, say this prayer. Okay, great. Now we'll get you baptized, and uh, and we're just going to assume that you're saved even though you live like a hellion at home, right? You have no desire to read the Bible on your own. You have no desire to pray on your own. 
you know, so we need to, I, I encourage parents, treat your children like little humans because that's what they are, right? They're little humans. And we wouldn't do that with an adult. If we met an adult who said, I'm a Christian, but yet I never read, I never go to church. I don't go to church because I don't want to go to church, you know, and, and you would start to, are you saved? I mean, you don't seem to have a real interest in the things of God. Now, yes, our children go to church because we drag them there, right? But uh, would they want to be there? And do they want to be there for the right reasons? Uh, do they want to read the Bible on their own? Or do you have to force them? Like, did you read your Bible? No, I didn't. Okay, you should go read your Bible. Oh, fine, I read my Bible. Okay, you know, is that the mark of a believer? I mean, yeah. if you were an adult, I would hesitate to call you a Christian. If you, I don't want to read the Bible, I'll read it if I have to, you know. Good, no, you should want to read God's word. You should want to pray, right? So we need to, for their own sake, right? We are not doing our children any favor if we treat them like adult, like like believers, if they're really not, right? And this is where the comfort of the sovereignty of God comes in. Because if they truly are saved, or if they're one of the elect, there's nothing I can do to change that. If they're saved and I treat them like they're not, like, I don't know if I should get you baptized or not, right? That's not going to keep them out of heaven. If they're saved, they're saved. And there's nothing I can do to change that. But if they're not saved and I treat them like they are, well, all I'm going to do is make hell hotter for them. Because they're going to live their life, first of all, taking the Lord's Supper every week, drinking judgment on themselves, when they're not even saved, but I'm treating them like it because I don't want to hurt their little feelings. Um, you know, as parents, we need to be prepared to, um, at some point, we think they are, but then we think maybe they're not, to be willing to say, you know what, son or daughter, I love you, but you're not going to take the Lord's Supper anymore. You know, at least not for a while, because I'm just not sure where you are, and we're just, don't take it. And then we'll, I don't know, we'll see. And maybe that'll have an effect on them that they'll confess and repent and come back and start living the life. Um, but for their own sake, if we really love them, we've got to be honest with them. But that's up to parents, right? Nobody knows your children better than parents do. Um, and so you have to decide that for your own. You're their youth minister. You're their youth minister. Um, good, uh, good questions and comments. Uh, any others? Oh, I'm sorry. Chad was raising his No. Hand. This just thought comes to mind because one of the scriptures that I use a fair amount for whatever reason as it's appropriate, and that's the one that's um, uh, 2 Peter 1, 1 3, where it says, His divine power is bringing us to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Right. Um, by which he granted to us the precious and very great promise, so that through them we may become partakers of the nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world because of sin. I mean, that's just kind of, that's just a great, great, great right. Yeah. Not that yeah. it's all not great, because it's all phenomenal. Right. That's just, it's really true. Right. If you, if you view the scripture that way, or to a child can make him understand. I don't care what you do in life. Right. 
And, and whatever you do as far as Godly is concerned, right. this book, right. right. books, right. has it all for you. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's wrap this up. But I do want to make one quick comment um, is, uh, you know, this is the sort of thing that is going to keep our church small. Right. This isn't how you grow a church. Uh, but I've said for years, growing a mega church is really not hard. It's not. I mean, if I if we wanted to grow a mega church, I know exactly how to do it. First of all, you preach 15 minute sermons where you don't offend anybody. You get you pay for all of the most talented musicians to come in and lead spectacular worship with lights and and everything, all of the latest and greatest. And you implement all of the youth ministry. You, you take all of the children out. You give them their own worship service. You take all the children someplace else. But I tell you what, you can grow a church just just like that. Right. But I'm looking for a biblical church. I want a church that's biblical. And, you know, and look, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, I would rather have to get a part time job at some point to have a biblical church than be worried about growing the church so that I don't have to get a part time job. Um, you know, we we if we want to be biblical, we're, we're I think we're going to be a small church um, when you do it right. Um, I often think about there's a quote from Band of Brothers where uh, I know I had to throw in a World War Two illustration there somewhere where uh, just before they go into Baston, uh, they're told it looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. And uh, Captain Winter says, uh, well, we're the airborne. We're supposed to be surrounded. Right. His point is that if we do our job, we're supposed to be surrounded. And I think that as a church, if we do things right, um, we're going to stay small um, if we do things right. And if we do things biblical and that's OK, you know, that's OK. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take our roles and responsibilities, uh, first of all, as, um, as husbands and fathers to our families, Lord, but also we pray that as parents, that we would um, talk of your word uh, when we lie down and when we rise up, when we sit in our house and when we walk by the way, and that we would be constantly looking for opportunities to to speak the word of God into our children's lives. Uh, but we also just pray that as a church, Lord, I pray that every adult in our church today and going forward um, would look around at all of these little ones and recognize that, that they're watching us. Little eyes are watching all of us and they're listening and that we would all um, take a responsibility in uh, shepherding the next generation, Father, and ministering the word of God to them. And, uh, and Father, we just uh, we pray that you would help us to do that, help us to be biblical. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.